Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Aotearoa is in a collision zone. We are right where the gigantic Australian and Pacific plates meet, sliding and pushing against each other. In the ocean off the east coast of Te Ika Maui, we call where they meet the Hikurangi subduction zone. Along the length of Te Waipaunamu, the pressure forcing the Pacific plate upwards has created the mighty southern Alps. This is the line along which these two giant landmasses collide. But it's not as simple as this one line. Because, with this massive pressure, there are other cracks. A complex system of interrelated faults that act like pressure valves releasing at different times. Some more frequently, and some less so. Kia ora, no mai haramai ki tō tātou au Welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerk and Cannon tēnei. My main focus is to study low seismicity areas, the, the slow faults, the sleeping giants, the ones that people can think an area is seismically quiescent and then suddenly, you know, you get a Canterbury earthquake sequence that happens in, out of the blue. Professor Mark Sterling is the chair of earthquake science at the geology department at the University of Otago. So, yeah, EQC are funding a lot of my work to you know, characterise the, the seismic hazard of southern New Zealand because it's been kind of neglected a little bit in the past. It's, it's been quite hard to get funding to work in, particularly in Southland. And I think the maps of seismic hazard have suffered a little bit as a result because it appears that there's lower hazard in those areas and we need to check whether that's really the case, whether there is something physical about the environment that makes the faults less prominent in those areas, or it's just that people haven't been working on the area. The funder he mentions, EQC, is the New Zealand Crown entity, the Earthquake Commission. So how do you investigate a sleeping giant fault, one that has been quiet for a long time? Well, you dig a big trench. And this allows you to do something called paleoseismology, looking back into a false past to learn about the pattern of earthquakes that have happened before. The idea is that we're digging a trench across a fault and we're digging it deep enough to be able to see the fault in the cross-section of the trench. So we're getting ourselves a little geological cross-section of what the fault's doing to the youngest geological layers at the site. From that we work out you know, the angle of the fault, 
we work out how much the layers have been displaced across the fault because the displacements are prehistoric earthquakes. That noise in the background is a drone flying overhead. More on that shortly. But first, let me just set the scene for you. We are in the beautiful Nevis Valley, close to the border between Otago and Southland, on a still, clear and actually pretty warm autumn day. It's classic high country. To get here, it was a gravel 4x4-only track, cut with streams, and we are surrounded by rolling grassy and tussocked hills, and not much else. We are about 20 minutes past the Nevis Saddle, just off the track, a collection of utes parked up beside a large trench, about 20 metres long, 7 metres wide, and 4 metres deep. And the trench is wider at the top, with kind of a narrower trench within it, and it's currently full of a team of geologists in high-vis vests, including postdoctoral researcher Dr Jack Williams, who is part of this project to assess the seismic hazard in Southland and Otago. A lot of these faults, they probably have very irregular earthquakes, very infrequent every 10,000 years or so, but a lot of them might be quite close to, you know, population centres, so, you know, uh, places like Invercargill and Queenstown. So although they're... Very low slip rate faults, because they're so close to population centres, then they could still have quite high seismic risk associated with them. When I meet Jack, he's just about to launch the drone and explains what they use it for. Just to get some perspective of where we're trenching in terms of the wider landscape. So these kind of faults, which don't have many earthquakes, the expression in the ground is very subtle. So you want to get some nice kind of oblique photos of, of the trench site. And I guess the second reason is if we take enough photos, you can use that to make a three-dimensional model of the trench site and of the surrounding landscape as well. And that can kind of help you kind of map where the fault is and look at how quickly it's been kind of degrading over thousands of years. Firstly, yes, trenching is a verb. And secondly, that was a fly. The drone sounds more like this. Let's see. Home location is refreshed. Okay, so it'll be flying about 50 metres. And then we can just kind of track it on the iPad where it is, it's constantly. So it has a GPS in it and that means that we can get the accuracy of the photos within about 10 metres or so. There were investigations into this fault line in the 1980s, which gave the team an idea of where to dig the trench. But they also looked at aerial photographs to identify differences in the land surface that would indicate where the fault line is because of the nature of the fault. This is a reverse fault, so it's a fault where the two sides squeeze towards each other and one side rucks up over the other in a big earthquake. And thousands of those earthquakes have produced that range there, the Hector's range, Remarkable's range. Mark and I head down the slope of gravel into the trench, where the team of Ashley, Govinda, Andy, James and dog Sage and Baz are hard at work. Well, the dogs are mostly snoozing, but the geologists are busy. There are a few steps to their work. First thing we would do is clean off the walls of the trench with these scraping tools, which are actually um, Japanese rice cutting tools, but we call them paleoseismologist tools. And we're probably, after the Japanese rice growers, we're probably the second biggest market for these tools. Chipping away at this task at the bottom of the trench is geology master student Ashley Voss. 
you're essentially just cleaning up the mess yeah, after the digging. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. If you could get a perfect slice down here instead of yeah. digging it out, well, that would be the idea. That would be ideal. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. So we want to see what would happen if it wasn't disturbed by a digger. Got to go over here and scrape away. So, yeah, see how the looser stuff's kind of coming off and leaving behind a better, more compact lithology in there. So you'll get just a better definition of what's yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially like back up the top when we were doing it up there, we'd find that when we're scraping or even just after the, the more orange lithology actually drifted down onto the greyer rocks. So doing this actually lets you dust off and go, it's not orange, it's actually grey. Um, so you actually get to see that there are changes in the lithology units. Um, when yeah. you say lithology, that's just the... Just the gravels, really. Yeah, just like the, the blocks. So you got the topsoil, the orange unit, the grey, and the grey could actually extend down here, we're not too sure yet. And you've got this other siltier, siltier stuff. It's all, it's all just coming together, really. <laughs> and we're standing in the base of the trench, so what you're cleaning up here is further back in time yes. than up there. Yeah, that's what you'd, you'd hope. Ge Geology-wise, it'd be a bit odd if older was at the top, younger was at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that happens, but it definitely hasn't happened here, that's for sure. After this step, the team have a quick look to see if they can spot where the main fault line crack might be. And then they also grid the walls of the trench. Busy at this is James Stewart. He's an engineering geologist that works at a local firm in Cromwell. I was, luckily, I was managed to connect up with Mark and managed to get myself on the trip, so it's a, it's a great opportunity to be able to see this because it's a fantastic piece of science that, you know, you don't always get the opportunity to be a part of. Particularly for us in terms of consultancy, it's good to, you know, know how the morphology fits together and the different exposures and things and cross-sections so we know how that might affect residential development or something like that. He's got a bunch of string and has attached straight lines of it running along the length of the wall. Now he is marking off rectangles with string hanging vertically down the trench wall. It's laying out the grids with the string so you can go through and start logging the different sections of the trench. So you can break it up into a trench map of the different layers and the geology and things. So particularly around this area with the fault just coming through down there, trying to focus on that. And, but you can go through with your paper logs and start making a log of each grid section, start to piece the story together. As James said, they've already figured out where they reckon the fault line is on this side, just from the cleaning of the wall. He points it out to me. You can, you can see you can start to pack it out through here. So you see I've got these open textures in here. So there's these voids in amongst here. It's it's you know it's not not typical of the rest of the surrounding gravel. So you can start to see these open pores in here, and you can see there's a big gap in there. So it's, it's just as the fault's moving and grinding and these clasps are moving against each other, you're getting rid of all these fines out of it. Class is just another word for the different types of gravels they see in this trench wall. Because of the fault movement along the fault line, the sediment isn't as densely packed and it can be picked out because of these hollows and the kind of looseness in the gravel. But this trench wall is a bit tricky, says Mark because the gravels aren't giving them nice, clear, different layers of sediment, what they call units, to work with. They're thick, gravelly units, and they don't have a lot of sedimentary signature to them. You know, you can't see much difference, and so you've really got to clean it off and look for subtle 
things, and as the wall dries out, we start to see things. Once they do start to see things, they get marked. Either with plastic tags on nails that get hammered into the trench wall, or with spray can paint. The fault line gets marked with red tags, and they also trace along the different units or layers of sediment that they can see, with different coloured tags. And this is where something they call participatory review comes in. There's a whole group of us here and we're standing here looking at the face just like you, thinking, where am I going to put those tags? <laughs> and hopefully the idea is that if we get enough people that look at it and we have enough internal debate and discussion about it, that we get the tags in the right place. That's Professor Andy Nicholl of the University of Canterbury. With extensive paleoseismology experience, he is here to help out by laying another set of expert eyes on this trench wall. Because getting these tags right, interpreting what they see, is the tricky bit. It's just a wall of gravel layers to me. But the geologist's brains are working differently to mine, across time and 3D space. They spot breaks or oddities in the layers and are able to interpret what they might mean. As he puts in more tags in the wall to mark out a feature, Mark explains what he is thinking. The other thing I'm wondering about here is that perhaps this layer's even been folded a little bit. So, you know, as, as it thrusts up into the ground surface, you'll often get it like rolling over like a carpet. Okay. Like that. And so that and might that have might done be... that oh, yeah. in there. Because it just sticks out. It's really obvious and it kind of goes up like this. So it would have been in the earthquake, you have the violent shaking, you're sitting here you know, having your lunch or something and really violent shaking and what you'd look, you'd look around and you'd see this thing where there'd be this bulbous hunk of grass thrust up over, uh, much just like what we saw with Kaikoura earthquake. You know, some of us have worked on the Kaikoura earthquake and when you go and see something that's just happened, it's quite valuable because you can now look at something like this and imagine the environment straight after the earthquake. Is that yeah. what you're doing? Because mm. I'm finding it quite difficult yeah. to kind of conceptualise, but in yeah. your head, are you looking at these sediments and looking at these differences and kind of reversing back in time and thinking, mm. OK, if I'm what standing it, on this mm. ground, what's happening to it during this time when this earthquake yeah. ruptures? Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're trying to visualise what's going on because it has to make sense in terms of a process that's happening at the land surface. And it's got to be logical. So to do that and have the ability to visualise that past event, that's quite an important part of this job. And thinking in 3D space too, because we're not just thinking about a, a plane or a, a surface, we're thinking about this vault as a 3D structure that goes down 15 kilometres depth into the earth. It's the very tip of a very big feature. And that's why when these faults go off, they rupture many, many tens of kilometres of length, but also depth. So you've got this huge area of fault displacing, and that's why you get a big earthquake. Speaking of tens of kilometres, the Nevis Vault runs the full length of the Nevis Valley down to the Kaurau Gorge. But it looks like it might join up with the Cardona Fault, which then runs all the way to Wanaka. We have interpreted in the past that the Nevis-Cardona Fault system ruptures together in a single very big earthquake. That's why we're, we're giving it a priority to work on it, because it's the largest 
vault source in, in Otago, really. That's something that you're hoping to kind of confirm yeah, with yeah. this work as well, that yeah. the Nevis Fault does in fact link yeah. up. because I've had a student working on the Cardrona Fault. That early 1980s work, they did trenches, and but the trench that they did in the Kaurau Gorge, um, they did actually get some dating control on that because there was carbon material in it, which is quite rare for Central Otago trenches to have charcoal in them. So that part of the puzzle's been worked out by my master's student, Ella Vandenberg, and now this is the third part of the puzzle to see whether these Nevis trench data will link up, whether we can see the timings of earthquakes in the Cardrona and Kaurau having similar timings to these earthquakes. So ultimately, at the end of the digging the trenches and logging the trenches and doing all this paleoseismology work, you would love to come out with the timing that this fault generally ruptures, if Mm -hmm. it's every 10,000 years or 12,000 years. You would like to have confirmed whether it links up with the Cardrona fault Mm -hmm. so that you think of them all as one fault, one long fault line. Mm -hmm. And you'd like to have an idea of how big the ruptures are. Are those the kind of main things? Yeah, yeah. Um, How big the ruptures are, meaning like the estimate of the earthquake magnitude. So, yeah, we, the Cardrona Fault and the Nevis Fault have been already mapped back in the 80s, so the length of the fault is known. So we can already estimate the magnitude if you did get a linked-up earthquake. It's over 120 kilometres. It's a long way. But if we saw that the rupture timings all are consistent, we could then say, yes, that magnitude of earthquake, whatever it is, when in our calculations it might be 7.5 or something like that, it's pretty big, so like a Wellington Fault-sized earthquake, is a realistic earthquake size for, for this part of Otago. And so an earthquake that sort of size would produce damaging shaking simultaneously in Queenstown, Wanaka and Cromwell. First, they need to date the historical earthquakes in this trench. Complicating their discussions and interpretation is that loose gravelly sediment they are dealing with, but also the nature of reverse faults. You've got this fault at depth in rock, but it's coming to the surface and cutting through young sediments. And stuff that's like this, it's never going to come through very cleanly. It's going to come out in different breaks. And often you'll get kind of like flower structures, they're called, whereas the fault gets closer to the ground surface, there's less confining pressure and normal stress on top of the fault, so it sort of breaks out in various places. And a reverse fault, one of these reverse faults, if you ever see a reverse fault structure, it can be quite a messy thing on the ground. It'll kind of look like, almost like the ground's chundered up. You know, it's just thrown up a whole load of dirt and stuff onto the surface because it's breaking through this unconsolidated material and thrusting it up and there's lots of internal deformation and damage and it'll look like sometimes it'll look like it comes out as a slurry especially if you've got a bit of liquefaction going on as well because you've got very strong ground shaking happening at the same time when this happens you've got shaking stronger than you could stand. You couldn't stand up. It'd be more than the acceleration stronger than gravity. So you you physically would be thrown around if you were right here, right at earthquake time zero. 
so the number of expert eyes in the trench is important. And like I said, this is the reason why Andy is here. We've been doing these probably, well, they've been ha- in New Zealand, they've been happening for about 40 years. And I guess I've been doing it for about 20 years all over the country. So you probably have farmers up in the North Island that remember that guy that came onto their property and dug had, a big hole. Dug a big hole, made a mess, hopefully cleared it up. Filled it back in, right? Yeah, yeah, we always fill it back in. Based in Canterbury, Andy is also investigating the paleoseismology of the incredibly complex 2016 Kaikoura earthquake. In this, many faults ruptured at the same time. We're looking backwards so that we can get an idea of how often 2016-type earthquakes would happen on those fault lines. So it might be, for example, that each individual fault most often ruptures on its own in a relatively small earthquake, or it could be that most often those earthquakes rupture many faults at the same time, and it makes a big difference which of those two alternatives we're looking at for seismic hazard. So you're digging presumably a series of trenches across the different fault lines to then cross-reference and see, well, did this one rupture but not all of those ones or did they all rupture together at the same time? That's exactly what we're doing. The challenge is that when we do this sort of study, we have we usually have a window of time and we think there was an earthquake on that fault within that window of time and then on the next one we have another window of time and they might overlap So then we've got to decide, well, okay, they overlap. They could have been one big earthquake or they could have been two earthquakes that were separate that came close to each other. This is because the dating of the sediment isn't super precise. You get at least a 50 to 100 year window, says Andy. Though there are some methods that can allow tighter estimates. When you're looking at tree rings and and trying to identify earthquakes, then you can get down to a few years. And then also they've done a lot of work coring lakes and they can see disruption in the lakes and they're correlating those with earthquakes and they have a bit better precision as well. But at the moment we're stuck with radiocarbon dating and various other forms of dating which has a bit of a plus or minus on it. For this site, the team will use a new method, one that wasn't around when the first trenching studies were done on this fault. It's called optical stimulated luminescence dating and Jack Williams fills me in on how it works. Basically, you can look at the kind of sediment that we collect from these trenches and you can actually backtrack when it was last exposed to sunlight because whenever stuff is being exposed to sunlight, it's kind of changing the chemical composition and the atomic structure and we can use that to date when the sediment was last exposed to sunlight and that will give us an idea of its age, basically. So that's the big advance we have from the 1980s because in the 1980s all you had was carbon dating and there's very little carbon in central Otago for for dating faults. So that's why it's worth coming back to these places. So when you finish doing your log, you get little cores? Yeah, we've got some little tubes, metallic tubes, which we'll hammer into the trench wall to collect the sediment and then that will go off to uh, Victoria University and they'll date that. In general, for this area, Mark tells me that the depth of the trench will mean they go back in time about 60 to 70,000 years. So it's not displacing this layer here. Spray can in hand, Andy has been having a closer look at the marked up wall and he's got an interpretation that's got Mark pretty excited. So that's three surfaces that have been broken by three different events. So that's, that's pretty neat, you guys. This means that there might be a record of three different earthquakes that they've found. 
Mark patiently takes me through their thinking. This layer here is broken across here. They've marked out the different gravel layers with the plastic colour tags. So we walk along the trench, following these dots of colour that are in a horizontal line on the wall. But then you can see the dots jump upwards. The line has been broken. The layer has been displaced, meaning that it has experienced an earthquake. And Mark shows me how older earthquakes haven't impacted the younger layers. But then as we follow those layers, we see that more recent earthquakes have. So it looks like a record of three different earthquakes, which they can now try to date. If you then dated that sediment there... The sediment on top. Yeah, that hasn't been broken by the fault. Mm. And you date that sediment there... Underneath the yellow line. Yeah, underneath. The time between those two ages would be the time of the last earthquake. You're bracketing the timing of an earthquake. You can rarely date an actual earthquake because it's in a... It's in 20 seconds of geologic time. But you can say it happened before this and after this. And then you can work back in the same way, that same logic with those previous sediments. And that'll give you your three intervals between earthquakes. And that becomes your data for making a recurrence interval and a seismic hazard estimate with the estimate of the size of the earthquake from the mapping of the fault that all the good people have done long before us. That's the value, Mark Sterling says, of having lots of minds and eyes on the job. Some people would spot things or interpret things differently and they can suggest and bounce ideas off each other. As well as Andy, they have another expert from GNS lined up to visit the trench. But they also have some checks and balances for their ideas. Firstly, within this trench itself. The two sides of the trenches have to make sense, they have to be compatible as well. Because the same, you can't sort of say, oh, the earthquake's affected this side, but not that side. Or it's an entirely different type of fault on that side, not that stuff. And secondly, through digging another trench, not too far away, in an area where they hope they will get better defined layers. A short rattle down the road and we can see the digger is still at work. The first part has been completed though, so some of the team can't help but climb down to have a preview. Yes. This second trench will give them more confidence in their results in dating, helping them nail down those questions about the Nevis Valley Fault. And ultimately, allowing them to update the seismic hazard map of this tectonic plate collision zone that we call Aotearoa, New Zealand. Thanks to Ashley Voss, Dr Jack Williams, Govinda Nirola and Professor Mark Sterling, all of the University of Otago. Thanks also to Professor Andy Nicholl of the University of Canterbury and James Stewart of Geosolve. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, and thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help. Sound engineering was by William Saunders. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast platform. And if you visit the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, you'll be able to find more information, photos and links related to the story, as well as access to the Our Changing World's extensive back catalogue of episodes. And you can sign up to our monthly newsletter. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. 
Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai, to wiki.